Good evening, my friends. Welcome back to another episode of To Your Health with Dr. G. Here we are on this Wednesday night talking everything COVID. Hey, I've been telling you guys all week long, this is a special show. I'm so excited to have my longtime friends and colleagues from Loyola Street School of Medicine joining me here today, bringing you guys really just more of the, 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 the information. I mean, it's the elephant in the room. It's what we've been talking about for the last several months here in this country. It's so pervasive. It's part of the common vernacular. We have to keep talking about this. And when I talk about COVID, it's still an evolving topic. We're still trying to figure out the best ways to manage our patients that we care for, to protect the families that we love, and to continue to live healthy and active lifestyles. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Tear Health with Dr. G. My name is Dr. Mark Gomez. I'm a board-certified internal medicine physician practicing at Edward Hospital in Naperville, Illinois. I'm also a member of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. Check me out on my website, www.drmarkgomez.com. Follow me on all social media handles at To Your Health DRG. And today we're just coming fierce with a great show, a special treat, COVID from the front lines. You guys are going to meet my experts in a few moments. I just really so happy you came here. And I have to tell you this, two things. Number one, I found the old Stritch School of Medicine class of 2004. And so uh, Dr. Schmitz and Dr. Carrick are in here. You'll meet them in just a, just a moment, but it's there. It's, pr it's proof. And then secondly, my pastor always says, smart people take notes. So I've got, a, I've got a pen and I've got paper and I want you to grab a pen and paper too, because really what we're going to talk about tonight is really the physician perspective of COVID-19 and the impact. So I'm so excited to welcome everybody back to the show. Again, check out my website, www.drmarkcovis.com. Before we get started, I have to hit you with a quick disclaimer. The content of To Your Health with Dr. G is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and that the content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Further details can be found at www.toyourhealthwithdrg.com slash disclaimer. So we're going to get right in, into it, everybody. We're talking about the impact from the physician perspective. There's a lot of different perspectives, but when it talks about frontline physicians, you can't find any better ones than the two I've got today. Some of my patients always say, oh, Dr. G, you're a frontline doc. And I go, frontline, put an asterisk next to that. I'm just trying to make sure people don't get this virus and people are safe. Of course, I see people on the back end after they've been hospitalized and released. But again, I kind of call myself a frontline asterisk. These are truly frontline heroes, uh, just longtime friends and colleagues of mine. So I'm going to introduce you to them right now. So here we go. Uh, first, I want to introduce longtime friend and colleague, Stritch School of Medicine classmate, Dr. Jillian Schmitz, MD, FACEP. She's a board-certified emergency medicine physician. She's associate professor at, U at Uniform Services University of the Health Services. Check her out, www.usuhs.edu. Dr. Schmitz, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dr. G, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here tonight. Hey, uh, Dr. Schmitz, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, you can tell us, tell us where you grew up. Obviously, I already, I already leaked that information about us going to Stritch together. Tell us a little bit about where you did your residency and maybe a few opening words on the impact on this virus that's, that's having on society. Yeah, absolutely. So after leaving you wonderful guys at Loyola, I went on to do my emergency medicine residency at the University of North Carolina. And I married one of our, our classmates who is a military emergency physician. So we have lived and moved all over the country. So I've practiced in emergency departments, I think six different states now. Um, and I'm a proud member of the military and emergency medicine department at USU. So I spend my time teaching medical students and residents and then practicing clinically in the emergency department. Um, and I think this has been clearly a, a career defining experience for many of us. Um, 
the initial moments were that of, of a little bit of fear, um, as we heard from our colleagues in Italy of, of get ready, this is coming, and, and hearing their stories about getting hundreds of patients at one time and not being prepared. Um, and I think that heads up gave us time to really look at our surge capacity and try and prepare for what we thought might be coming um, and understanding how do we do what we can and take care of ourselves and our patients and our community. Um, but I guess my, my take home has been that it's just been a moment of incredible pride to be able to, to serve, to give back to our communities, to fulfill our, our Hippocratic oath and take care of patients. And it's, it's humbling how much we've, we've learned over the last several weeks. Well, thank you, Dr. Spitz. It's great seeing you again. Long time no see. Although, although we did connect at that five-year reunion. Yes, we uh, did. <laughs> years ago. But I missed you and I missed Dr. Carrick at the 10-year reunion. I was there. Uh, so there we go. My next guest, I want to introduce a longtime friend and colleague of mine. Again, former classmate, uh, really connected well at, at our time at Stritch School of Medicine. I want to introduce you to Dr. Ryan Carrick, MD. He's a board-certified pulmonary and critical care medicine physician. He's a director of interventional Original bronchoscopy with Piedmont Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at Piedmont Healthcare. Check him out, www.piedmont.org. Dr. Carrick, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. Dr. G, good to see you. Hey, good seeing you too, brother. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, you know, obviously, we again leaked the bag. We're, we're all out of, out of stretch, but tell us a little bit more about yourself, uh, where, you did, where you grew up, where you did your residency, um, where you did your fellowship, and a few opening remarks about the impact of COVID 19. Sure, my uh, legacy is not quite as uh, illustrious as Dr. Schmitz's. is. However, I grew up in Chicago, uh, went to med school there with you, obviously, at Loyola, did my residency as well with you, stayed on, uh, did a chief year or two before, before uh, deciding to go into fellowship. I chose pulmonary and critical care medicine, um, partly to, to treat cases like COVID and to you know, be there as part of the the team to take care of the most sickest of sick. That's where I just felt most at home where some people, you know, got scared and turned and ran for whatever reason I was, I felt at home in the ICU. So, you know, I made that career decision, went down to Nashville, did a fellowship at Vanderbilt and uh, through a friend, a friend, I got a phone call and took the interview in a private practice group and at the time it was called Georgia Lung Associates here in Atlanta. Uh, we've since been acquired by a very large hospital system called Piedmont and now part of a, 12 hospital system here in the Atlanta area. I work at the main metro location, so we were kind of an epicenter as far as five different health systems in the city. We saw our health system as well as one other uh, saw the most cases of any hospital system in all of Atlanta. So we were a very busy unit. Um, much like uh, Dr. Schmitz said, we had a lot of surge capacity meetings. If, uh, you know, if we were taking sips of our drinks every time somebody said surge capacity staffing, we would all been drunk on the floor. But we made it through. You know, we got the surge. We didn't get the surge that, you know, that, you know, Italy, uh, China, and even New York and New Orleans got. But we were, we were at capacity. Our ICUs at, so, at several facilities were over capacity. But I could not be uh, more proud of the way our team handled that surge. Um, I helped direct the um, ventilator acquisition utilization uh, arm of that team. Um, luckily, we had enough equipment, had enough ventilators, didn't run short, didn't have to, you know, put anybody, uh, people on one ventilator, as, you know, you may have heard talked about, is there anything like that? So it never got that quite that bad. Uh, we were busy, but 
it wasn't uh, nearly as bad as some of the other places that were affected across the globe. So it was, a good, it, was, uh, it was a good experience to go through. I honestly hope I never have to do it again as we're kind of slowing down. But, uh, you know, in a time like that in crisis, you really find out who your heroes are and who you can rely on. Our team was all through all the way through, you know, nurses, respiratory therapists, patient care techs, Nobody turned tail and ran. Everybody confronted it, and it was really a really proud moment for us to see. Well, it's wonderful. Well, thank you, Dr. Carrick. Thanks for coming on the show today. And you hit the hit the head on the nail about maybe you're seeing some a little bit of decrease, but but the threat is still there. The threat is still real. And at any point, we can certainly have a surge in the number of cases, and certainly more need for proper treatment for these individuals. So there you guys go. You met the panel. They are awesome. Hashtag fierce. We got the Loyola thing going on tonight. So we're gonna get granular. We're gonna get into the details because I know we I know you out there probably have some questions, and I think I've actually written them down ahead of time because I actually got a lot of questions from my patients already. And so what I want to do, of course, is we're gonna get right into this again. What is that person? perspective from frontline physicians because you have, they have, Dr. Schmitz and Dr. Carrick really have the true tale of the impact, not only how it impacts how they practice, certainly from day one now to day over day 100 days in this country with COVID cases, but certainly how they even live their life, how they function as family people um, and, and with their loved ones. So we're going to talk about that in a little more detail as well, too. But of course, when somebody comes into the office, we call that the chief complaint. So here it is, the question of the hour, the chief complaint, what does COVID-19 look like in the eyes of frontline physicians? So let me, let me paint the scenario for you, Dr. Schmitz. You get the first question here. So uh, uh, according to Johns Hopkins University, the first case of COVID-19 was reported on January 22nd. So since then, we've had uh, more, this country's reported uh, almost 1.4 million cases and greater than 83,000 deaths. How many of us are still at risk for catching COVID-19? I think people want to know. What's your take? So I think we're all potentially at risk of getting COVID-19. Whether you know it or not is a whole nother story. Um, and that's a question of how many people have this virus that are asymptomatic versus those that have symptoms. Um, the good news is the majority of people who get it have mild symptoms, but it is, it is out there and it's you know, the invisible enemy. Um, it is out there where anyone can potentially get it. Um, there's no state that is you know, completely safe from this, and we know that certain people are at higher risk, but that risk is not zero for even the young and healthy in our population. Um, so I think we're, we're all at risk of potentially getting it. I think it's a balance of, of being cautious without panicking um, because we want people to feel safe and to be able to go to the emergency department or the hospital if they need it and they're sick. We're here to help. Um, but this is probably going to be here for a little bit, and we need to figure out what that new normal is going to look like. Thanks, Dr. Schmitz. Uh, Dr. Carrick, would you agree with Dr. Schmitz on that one? Yeah, 100%. I don't think I would add much to that. Everybody's at risk. Um, it's just a matter of figuring out who, um, who are the ones that are going to get sicker faster. And, and in general, that's the, the older population and those with you know, chronic medical conditions. So um, it's, a, it's a risk for everybody. You know, it's actually, as I see some of my patients, I've had a number of my patients that have tested positive, and, and unfortunately, I've had a few patients that have passed away. Um, you know, if you kind of put yourself in like day one, when you first had your first case of treating, this first question will go to you, Dr. Schmitz, and then I'll have Dr. Carrick answer as well, too. But, you know, compare yourself to day one, and here we are now, a few months later, more than 100 days later. Have the demographics changed? Is it still 
elderly and immunocompromised? Are we seeing more of a gamut of people that may have been unsuspected or less likely to have something and then they present with something? What's your take, Dr. Schmitz? I think we're learning about this more every week. And um, I completely agree with Dr. Carrick. There are certain populations who we knew were going to have more susceptibility to more severe disease and people who were older or had underlying medical illnesses. But some of the things that we're seeing that's new over the last couple of weeks is the increased prevalence in African-Americans and Hispanics and people of lower socioeconomic backgrounds, um, that even though they make up a, a much smaller percentage of the population, their risk of having positive, of being hospitalized, of having ICU is much, much higher. And so it's informing us a little bit about the demographics. Um, it's also changed in that, you know, initially we thought children were completely immune to this and, and we're starting to see some cases. There's been a discussion of certain inflammatory disorders. Um, it is incredibly rare in children. So I think for the most part, they're still very healthy, um, but it's something that it is continuing to evolve of, of what this looks like and who it impacts. Um, but particularly things like diabetes and obesity, um, those are also major risk factors for people who may need more aggressive care. You know, Dr. Dr. Carrick, you're seeing patients, I mean, you're the one that's, that's intubating patients, you're in the ICU. What are you seeing as far as the demographics? Are you seeing, seeing the traditional demographic that's affecting this disease? Or are you seeing a, a widespread too? Well, it's a widespread. Um, I agree that in, just to clarify, immunocompromised folks doesn't just mean you've had an organ transplant or you're taking medications for lupus or rheumatoid arthritis or something like that. In fact, the minority of patients that I've seen go to the ICU that are immunocompromised are the classic immunocompromised. But we think about um, states of health like Jillian Dr. Schmitz mentioned, diabetes, obesity, uh, high cholesterol, hypertension, those have an effect on your immune system. So being overweight, you have an altered inflammatory response to inflammation. And our hospital system has a very large solid organ transplant program, liver, kidney primarily. Uh, we don't do lung or bone marrow. We have only seen two uh, solid organ transplants get severe disease of the entire population. The vast majority of the folks that get admitted to the intensive care unit are 45 and older and much higher percentage of 65 and older that end up on the ventilator. And those patients don't have your classic uh, you know, in, immunosuppressed state like HIV um, and transplant. They're the ones that have chronic conditions, uh, coronary artery disease, hypertension, diabetes, like we mentioned. Obesity is a huge one. We've seen several obese patients end up on the ventilator. And I think that that's, you're seeing um, biophysiology in action, that those patients are not healthy at baseline and they get sicker faster when they get exposed to something like this. We have not seen very many at all otherwise young, healthy, thin, fit uh, patients get sick. We did see a lot of that, I will say, uh, with H1N1 back in 2009 when I was a fellow at Vanderbilt. We were seeing young, fit, healthy patients uh, suffer ARDS and be on the ventilator. But this is a different animal. This is, um, this is attacking those that have chronic conditions. And yes, I will say that as far as the demographics go, it's a pretty equal split male to female, may have a little bit larger male predominant predominance. So I was looking at the numbers in Georgia today, which are not great. I would say about 25% of the cases do not have demographic data tagged to them other than age. But there is an equal, for what's reported, there is a slightly predominant um, predominance, I should say, in African-Americans. 
in the state of Georgia, and in the state of Georgia, less than one-third of the state is African-American. So, you know, if you play those numbers out, roughly twice as many African-Americans are, are being diagnosed and hospitalized uh, as opposed to their white uh, non-African-American counterparts. Again, that data is not great because there's a lot of um, missing uh, data uh, that we can't say what demographics everybody's diagnosis uh, came from. And the national data also has holes in it. But just from what I'm seeing personally, I can verify that, that those numbers are fairly accurate. Well, you're talking about the disparities, and certainly this virus has certainly exposed some of the dysfunctions and certainly made and more, certainly more uh, exacerbate a lot of the disparities that are that have actually already ex existed, especially when it comes to even minority populations. So, Dr. Schmitz, let me ask you this: This is kind of a frequently asked question that I get as related as it relates to risk. So, here's the question: I am a parent with young children. We're all healthy, and our risk is low. Why should my family have to worry about this virus when statistically we're not likely to need hospitalization? Because we're not statistics and statistics speak to populations as a whole, not individual families. Um, so although the risk is lower, I think it's important to point out that about one out of 25 to one out of 50 people who are between the ages of 20 and 44 will end up in the ICU. Um, so that risk is not zero. And I've had several colleagues that were in their 30s, neighbors um, who ended up in the hospital who had no underlying medical problems whatsoever. Um, so it, it is definitely a myth to say that I'm healthy, I can't get sick. Um, the second thing is that I think we're part of a really interconnected society, right? So what, what I do in my house, but if I, and I'm exposed and I go to the grocery store, we know the spread of this is both droplets. So kind of coughing, breathing, but also by touching things. Um, and we think things can live on the surface for hours to days. Um, and so we're potentially exposing other members of society and people who are potentially at higher risk. So I think in addition to worrying about ourselves and our immediate families, the, the bigger concern is this is, is almost our, our public servant duty to take care of our communities and to limit the amount of spread within our, our direct community. Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Schmitz. Uh, Dr. Carrick, let me ask you this frequently asked question. Here we go. Someone I, I live with just tested positive for COVID-19. Should I worry I will get it? Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, the virus is highly contagious. Uh, it can be spread by a number of ways, uh, primarily contact um, and also not, not just close physical contact, but contact with surfaces, you know, touching glassware and silverware plates and all that in the same household is going to expose, or excuse me, increase your risk of exposure and contracting the illness for sure. Um, again, that should not necessarily convey the fear that you're going to contract a severe case of the disease and get hospitalized, but uh, it's definitely a risk with a member of your own household uh, test positive. So, Yes, if, if you have a member of your household that tests positive, you should definitely you know, try to do your best to quarantine and stay away from them and seek medical attention if you have any symptoms whatsoever, but it's not a need to panic. Dr. Schmitz, I want to uh, take that question a little bit further. What about on the work front? So say a coworker, uh, this is another question, I forget this question, a coworker I work with, I work close with, just tests positive for COVID-19, should I be worried? I think the same answer is Dr. Carrick. I think it depends where do you work, how close in contact are you, and how healthy are you? Are you immunocompromised? 
that one of the things that we're seeing in spreads of places like nursing homes or jails or the meat um, factory plants where they're very close together, where it's spreading very, very rapidly. Um, I don't want to panic people that if you're if I'm in the same building but on a different floor, that doesn't mean that I'm necessarily going to get it. But you have to take those precautions. Um, I think if you're otherwise healthy and feeling okay, it's important to self-quarantine because you don't know necessarily if you've been exposed to the virus or not. Um, but definitely check in with your primary care physician if you feel like you're getting symptoms, and especially if you're having shortness of breath, that you seek treatment and care. So, Dr. Carrick, let me ask you this question. You know, I'm, I'm going to play off what Dr. Schmidt said, uh, the previous comments where she talked about the interconnected society that we certainly live in. Uh, you know, we talk about individual risk on one hand, somebody's personal risk of getting COVID-19, and then we talk about more of the societal, the systemic risk. Is it plausible that this virus can literally break down healthcare as we know it? Do you see that? I mean, can the systemic risk of this thing, when, when there's surge capacities and things like that, can it, can it really destroy, uh, can the healthcare system collapse? I guess that's what I'm trying to say. And then yeah, why should somebody yeah. care about that? Well, let's, let's just remove uh, big cities like New York and, and cities in Italy and China uh, where the population density is very dense and they, the population outstrips the healthcare's capacity, healthcare system's capacity to care for them in a pandemic. Let's just go to a small rural town where, uh, let's just say, for example, a very realistic example where a meatpacking plant exists and there's a small hospital that services a small town, but there's an industry that employs a large amount of people who end up getting sick at the same time. They overrun that hospital's capacity when there's a surge of patients. If 50 patients fall ill, if there's a nursing home in a small town, uh, if there's a funeral in a small town where 25 to 50 patients get sick and get hospitalized, they overrun that hospital's capacity to care for all other cases and diagnoses, not just coronavirus or COVID-19. So you have an explosion, a local explosion takes out a local healthcare system. And those patients who need treatment, seek treatment for other things like strokes, heart attacks, chest pain, just the run of those stuff that comes to the ER or gets directly admitted from offices like yours, they no longer have the capacity to properly care for those patients. They're in surge mode, they're in crisis mode, they're canceling routine procedures, they're not performing heart catheterizations as routinely as they might be, they're not doing um, diagnostic exams quickly because they're afraid of uh, of contaminating the equipment, so there's maybe delays in getting tests done because they're waiting for the test to come back, COVID test to come back positive. So very quickly, uh, even a small outbreak can overcome a local town's healthcare system. And then looking at other towns, like larger towns like Atlanta and New Orleans, you can have a very controlled outbreak that may not be a surge that completely decimates the healthcare system, but it does overcome the hospital's ability to take care of all the other routine diagnoses that come through the door. So yes, it's, it's an interconnected web. Um, I think it's, it may be difficult for some folks who don't work in healthcare to understand that unless you see the horrible images that are coming out of some of these towns where they're having to use mobile tents and mobile refrigerated trucks to store the, the bodies of the folks that have passed away. It's not like that everywhere, but it is a crisis when your hospital system doesn't have the capacity to care for the normal things that normally come to the door. 
I think sometimes we always think about how, oh, my local hospital, they can just treat anything. And again, this virus has exposed um, the inequity, I would say. Dr. Schmitz, from your perspective, you know, you're seeing people in the ER. You know, you're treating everything, you know. Uh, you, you know, I've talked a long time ago. It's like, you'll, you guys will treat anything. ER doctors are amazing. Um, how has this affected you? Have, you? have you seen an inability to try to treat other health concerns outside of COVID? Because we're always thinking COVID, 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 COVID. Are you, do you have a fear that people are not coming to the hospital? Or are you seeing those kind of things where you said, oh my gosh, I wish you came to, I wish you came and saw me 24 hours ago or 48 hours ago. Absolutely. So both of those, I think um, to speak a little bit to the earlier question of the systemic problems, the other thing that we didn't necessarily think about, but we're seeing a lot more in the emergency department is the increase in alcoholism. We know alcohol sales have gone way up. We're seeing increased cases of child abuse, of domestic violence as people have been home quarantined. And that's been um, terrifying and just very sad. I think the, the concept of social distancing, what we're actually doing is physical distancing, that social connectedness is so important. And the other kind of thing that we're seeing with this is the impact on mental health. Uh, we lost one of our own emergency physicians who was one of the medical directors in New York who committed suicide a couple of weeks ago. And that's really taken a toll on our whole community, um, knowing that somebody who had no prior mental health problems really just felt overwhelmed. Um, and so there's many different impacts of that too. But I think as we're seeing a rise in the COVID cases, what we're seeing across the country is a decrease in other non-COVID medical emergencies. So things like stroke, heart attacks, we're down to about less than 50% of what we normally see. And, and that begs the question of where are those patients going? Um, I've talked to colleagues in, in Sweden on a webinar last night. This is something across the world that people are noticing their registries are way down. Um, and I think people are afraid to go to the hospital and when I talk to my colleagues who have greater volumes of COVID patients, like in New York, they are routinely seeing patients now who had a stroke, you know, six, seven days ago and are just now coming to seek care. And there are a number of things we see in the emergency department that are very time sensitive. And for stroke in particular, we have a very narrow window of, of three hours um, where we can do something that can reverse some of those long-term effects. And if people are delaying care, if they are postponing or, or not taking their medications because they're afraid to get medication refills, um, then we see the second wave of illnesses and emergencies that are really an exacerbation of chronic diseases and new acute illnesses that were potentially preventable, but people delayed seeking that care. And, and I'm very, very concerned about that. So as, as a primary care physician, I'm certainly concerned. I echo your guys' concerns and we have to really say total care does not stop. But, but I think really the messaging might have been a little confusing because when I think about hospital systems, you know, we, we see this surge, we're seeing these number of cases again, 100 days ago, just over 100 days ago, zero cases in this country. Now, 100 days plus later, I think it's 110 days to be exact, you know, one point, almost 1.4 million cases, 83,000 deaths. And so I think our messaging from hospital systems, health systems were like, all right, stay home, you know, because we don't want to have the surge capacity. And I wonder if that might have gotten to people that said, you know, we're staying home. So let me ask this question to Dr. Carrick. How do we convince people that have been staying home on the sidelines that the hospital is still a safe place to go? How do we do that? Because people say, if I go to the hospital, I'm going to get COVID. How do we change that mindset? Well, I mean, I don't have a solid answer for that question. I thought about it because he you know, sent it to me earlier. 
Um, people are afraid, and I don't think anything I'm going to say that it will, it will waylay their fears entirely, but most hospitals have tried to, to um, keep COVID patients cohorted, meaning in a, you know, one separate wing of the hospital. You know, it's not always entirely possible to do, certainly very difficult to do in a place like an emergency room before you have a you know, set diagnosis. So you know, Dr. Schmitz's job is, is a lot harder than mine when trying to put patients in certain areas. She, she's taking um, her head no, by the way. She's like, no. That's much harder. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, but my fear is this. Uh, there's, a, there's data that came out of an article in the New York Times, and also um, I heard some interviews from, uh, I believe it was on NPR. I'm not trying to endorse either of those things. It's just where I heard it. But um, there's ambulance drivers have seen a record number of cardiac arrests and deaths at home for folks that are, are trying to avoid going to the hospital just for that reason, because they're scared to go out and they're scared to go to the hospital. They think they're going to get COVID. Um, and there's a two to three time, maybe higher spike in the overall deaths that are not COVID positive. But I'm going to call those COVID related, because if people are dying in ways in, an epi- in a pandemic, uh, but are not see- seeking medical attention out of fear of contracting the virus, what's worse? What's worse, getting the virus and potentially going to the hospital or staying at home and ignoring chest pain or stroke-like symptoms or not refilling your diabetes medicines and then having a fatal outcome because of that? I, I don't know which one's worse. But I will say, I mean, I can only speak, of course, from my hospital system. To get back to the original question, I can't speak for every hospital system. I can only imagine that every hospital system is striving to do the same thing as we are, is keeping not only our patients safe, but also our workers safe from contracting the virus and doing the best thing we can to isolate, use PPE appropriately, use hand washing appropriately, sanitizing, peer checking when we're donning and doffing our personal protective equipment, and just trying to do our best not only to, to keep ourselves safe and our families safe when we go home, but also, of course, to keep those around us safe. A hospital is a fairly safe place, but, of course, uh, there are going to be some hospital-acquired uh, infections, I'm sure. Uh, I am only aware of one at our hospital that, was, that tested positive after being admitted to the hospital. So it's very low, but it's never going to be zero. Dr. Schmitz, what is your, what are you guys doing uh, where you're at down in Texas? What are you guys doing to let people know that you guys are still open, that it's still safe to go? So I think our media campaign has changed a little bit to say, yes, we want you to stay home. But if you're sick, you need to come to the hospital. And, and I will go as far to say, I think it is probably the safest place in the country to go right now are the nation's emergency departments. Um, and to give an example of that, um, I, we were talking earlier, I had my COVID antibodies drawn and oh, yeah. this morning, um, which we can talk about the, the risks and benefits of those. But an antibody essentially is a sense to see if you've been exposed to the disease and if your body is, is fighting off an immune response. I was in New York in early March for a medical conference surrounded by people who eventually tested positive. I've been working in the emergency department, you know, around hundreds of patients who were persons under investigation. And my antibodies were negative, meaning that I have not been exposed to the disease. Um, And so that means that the hand washing works, the protective equipment works. We've put up tents um, as have hospitals across the country where patients who are symptomatic get tested. They don't even come into the hospital. They're screened outside. They're swabbed in their car. Um, the emergency departments, we have really um, set out areas where people who have different symptoms are in different areas. We are seeing patients in record time. Um, we're using 
full protective equipment. We have negative pressure rooms. We're doing everything we can to make this very, very safe. And I just, I really can't emphasize that enough that if, if you are having chest pain, if you feel like you're having a stroke, something is really concerning you, this is a safe, safe place to go. We will take care of you. We will make sure that our healthcare workers are safe and that you are safe as a patient. But urgently, we want to make sure that your medical condition is, is okay and that we can take care of you quickly. Excellent. Well, thanks for giving that perspective, guys. I want to switch topics a little bit. You know, we've been talking about risk, exposures, and things like that, but I want to get a little bit into the testing diagnosis. I'm going to get a little to what kind of treatments, and of course, we'll get into some myths versus facts. So here we go. From, um, from um, a testing standpoint, I always say this, and it's a common phrase in industry, you can't manage what you can't measure. And, there's, and this is certainly true in this case. Think about all the things that we've done that are days together back in Loyola, you know, getting data, getting statistics, getting information, looking at metrics. Again, you can't manage, you can't measure. So let me ask this question. Dr. Carrick, should testing for COVID be universal? Why or why not? I don't think everybody should be uh, randomly tested or should mandate testing for everybody. Um, for the following reason, if, if I test 100 people and uh, let's say 50 of them come back positive, but only five of those 50 you're having symptoms, what do you do with those other 45 people besides tell them to stay at home, um, you know, self-quarantine, safe distance, all that? We're already doing that. Now, yes, if you knew you were positive for the virus, you would tell them to self-quarantine and you know, not to go out in public and try to stay away from their families, et cetera, and try to limit the spread. But the, the reality of that is if they're an asymptomatic carrier of the virus and they've been infected, then they've already likely exposed most of those around them. So we don't have a treatment arm, an algorithm that's, that really changes the outcome as of right now. And I, I'll, I can wait a little bit to talk about some of the medications and treatments. But we don't have, you know, if, if, if I find out that some of my patients test positive but not having symptoms, I don't change any therapy. There's no prescription yet or, you know, vaccination yet for any of these patients that's going to change the outcome. So the advice stays the same, you know, maintain practicing social distancing and just being smart. Um, there's also no reliable uh, way of knowing that even if you've contracted the virus, that you're not ex um, at risk of contracting it again. There's been cases of folks uh, documented in China and Italy and probably soon in, in, in the States where they initially tested positive, had symptoms, had the illness, maybe even got hospitalized, hospitalized, excuse me, went home, and a couple of months later developed symptoms again, got tested, and they're positive again. So this virus, we don't know the natural history and future what's going to go on with this virus. Everybody knows the coronavirus mutates. We all know that you know, it's, it's, it's going to be a challenge to treat and to develop an effective vaccine to it. But knowing that you test positive is not going to change what your physician will tell you and do for you. They would still tell you to seek medical treatment only if you develop symptoms, fever, fatigue, cough, shortness of breath, in particular shortness of breath but just maintaining the, the proper isolation precautions and social distancing is all the best we can do right now. So Dr. Schmitz, let me, let me kind of piggyback on what Dr. Dr. Carrick is saying, uh, you know, certainly speaking on that, you know, there, there's, we, we know that there are some testing um, 
limit limitations. I think the latest statistic right now in this country, we're testing 300,000 people a day, uh, but we've net, uh, we've only really tested about in total about 3%, 2 or 3% of the entire population of 350 million people. No state yet has tested more than 10% of their population. Those are some of the facts out there. So from an ER perspective, I mean, are you, you know, obviously you guys are getting, you know, rapid, te rapid tests and things like that. Um, are you testing everybody that's coming in or, or do you think people should be tested at a, at a higher rate? So the CDC has a couple different categories depending on how scarce of a resource testing is. So there's kind of a couple different strategies. The first is containment. So if you are in an area where the prevalence is very, very low or if it's very early in the pandemic, um, there that surveillance is important because you're trying to really hone down on who has it and track down their contacts so you can contain it. Um, we pretty quickly moved from containment to the second stage, which is mitigation. Um, and as we kind of discussed earlier, it was about flattening the curve. Um, the idea with that was that it was never meant to necessarily decrease the number of cases. It was meant to really spread them out so that we had the resources to be able to take care of them in a timely manner rather than getting a surge all at once. Um, we have changed dramatically. I'm in San Antonio, Texas, where I live. And initially, like I mentioned, I was in New York and several of my colleagues tested positive and I, I wanted to know as a healthcare worker, but I never had symptoms. So I didn't meet the qualifications. I had to self quarantine for 14 days so that I didn't expose anyone. But as, as Dr. Carrick was alluding to, it was just sort of assumed that you probably had an exposure. You just, you assume that it's positive. Um, then we started getting more tests and now um, we have much more liberal testing of people who have mild symptoms, including those that, who are not hospitalized. Um, and just yesterday, the mayor announced that we were going to start testing essentially anybody who wants it, um, that we now have the ability to do it. And they are mandatory testing all the nursing homes and jails where we've seen kind of outbreaks. Um, but that's going to be very unique to your region and what your numbers are to see kind of what you have. I think when there is a scarcity of resources, and it's not just the test, it's the swab, it's the medium that it's made in. There's several different components in that supply chain that can be limited. And so I think if you have a shortage of supplies, you have to really limit those to who need it the most and where it's going to make a difference. And that's typically going to be in a patient that you're admitting to the hospital so you can cohort them um, and your healthcare workers that are symptomatic so that you can identify surveillance. California is really the first state who's really looked at just testing the whole county is to see general surveillance and they're seeing much higher numbers than what they expected um, of people who were asymptomatic. And I think Although it doesn't change management, it gives us some idea of how widespread this is and people who are asymptomatic, and that will give us a little bit better data for understanding what our fatality rates are and, and knowing what that denominator is to, to help with disease modeling down the line. Dr. Carrick, let me ask you this question. Uh, you are privy to be obviously in the hospital. You're in the ICUs. Uh, Dr. Schwitz and I, we're, you know, she's in the ER and I'm in, I'm in the clinic doing telemedicine in some flannel pajamas sometimes. It is what it is. So, uh, but, but let me ask you this question because this, this, this disease has certainly really changed the dynamic of how we treat people. The people that are hospitalized, their family members are not there. They may be alone. You know, how do you deal with that? You know, how do you approach communicating with family, um, you know, virtually, when they're used to being able to see their loved one right there in the flesh, how do you deal? How are you dealing with that? Yeah, it's a it's a challenging question. It's a good question, and I'm not sure the you know the public knows what exactly goes on once you get you know locked down in a hospital. The, our entire hospital is not allowed visitors now for close to a month. 
Um, actually, it was just over a month. It's been almost six weeks now. We have not allowed any visitors uh, inside the hospital. Very few exceptions uh, for end-of-life visitation. And even at that point, uh, if the patient tested positive for COVID, the, the families are not allowed to go into the room uh, for their own safety. So what we've been doing is uh, if the patient is not alert and talkative and able to make a phone call themselves, uh, one of the members of the healthcare team, either the, uh, one of the providers, physician, or uh, advanced practice professionals, ATPs, the PAs, and nurse practitioners will take turns calling the family. Of course, if they call and want to speak with somebody, we'll, we'll speak with them, but we make an effort to call them once a day. Uh, we've uh, incorporated uh, some laptop tablets and used um, different uh, programs such as Zoom uh, to set up uh, meetings. And so we set, you know, sanitize and wipe down and get the laptop um, and tablet in the room. And then the, the family member calls in on their, you know, their smart devices. They can, you know, talk virtually or see them. Uh, so we've gotten creative a little bit, but it's, you know, it's really heartbreaking to see the sickest of the sick uh, often alone, uh, well, alone from their families for potentially weeks at a time. You know, they're not there to be comforted. They're not there to help us uh, calm them down when delirium strikes. Or they're not there to help us out with, uh, you know, to alert us when they need something. Um, and it's really, it's really been a challenge. And I think that uh, the, the biggest, I, it was heartbreaking to me to see that, but what was even more heart rendering was in most of the times when you call these families, they are thanking you uh, for what you're doing, which is really, really nice to hear that, you know, they're saying, you know, I know it's tough. I wish I could be there with my mom or dad or brother or whatever, but man, you guys must be going through hell there and I can't thank you enough for caring for my loved one. Thank you for what you're doing. You know, stay safe. You know, they're saying that to me. Um, you know, my heart's breaking for them and theirs is in turn breaking for me. So, it's 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 been nice to have that experience that, that people understand that um, people you know are not by and large not getting upset that they can't come and see they understand and they're just thankful for what you're doing for their family members so you know that's been, that's been one silver lining to this very dark cloud. I want to ask uh, both you guys a, a question before we get into some myths versus facts. But um, you know this has changed us, and I'm going to play off what Dr. Kerch just said. You know, COVID has certainly affected us emotionally, but we are human. We feel that's that's what we do, and it's okay to be to, to be comfortable with a whole range of emotions during this time. Uh, we're truly in an unprecedented unprecedented. Uh, time in our lifetimes that will define us forevermore. I've actually had to personally think about myself. You know, these times when you have when you have time now, you become very introspective. And I think how I approach it, like I say, okay, I'm a you know I'm a parent. I have two young kids, and I'm still going to the office center, but we take safety measures, and I want to make sure I'm good. And when I come home, first thing in my garage, I'm taking off my clothes. Clothes go right into the laundry machine. Things like that. Shower right away. Dr. Smith, tell me about the impact just on how this has been from not only approaching your patients, but also how do you approach your family? So I do a similar routine. I have a, we have the hospital issued scrubs. So I change the minute I get into the hospital and then I have a specific pair of scrubs that I just change into. And then it goes right into the garage. They don't even come in the house. I shower, you know, as soon as I get home before I hug the kids, I have a pilot checklist of my hand sanitizer in the car. So I'm not touching anything. Um, but it is, it is emotional. I, I think having, you know, lost a couple of our, our colleagues, a couple of our, our paramedics, um, there was a story last week of it, an emergency medicine nurse who ran in to help with the resuscitation and didn't have time to put on her 
protective equipment and then died a couple of weeks later. And, and people are literally risking their lives. And, and to speak to Dr. Carrick's point, it, it is heartwarming. I think people have been incredibly understanding and kind and compassionate. And on the news, when people are, you know, ringing their bells and hitting their pots and pans eight o'clock at night, like it, it brings tears to my eyes. It's, we don't necessarily need people to say, thank you. This is our job is what we signed up for. But to know that we are all in this together and that this is a community of everyone trying to help and school teachers trying to make, you know, masks for our kids and learning to be not only a physician and a mom, but a third grade and fifth grade teacher at home has been very humbling of, of understanding other people's roles in society and how we can all help each other. And, and even at the grocery store, you know, people helping their elderly neighbors so they don't have to leave. It's been very heartwarming. And I, I'm hoping that when this is all over that we as a society don't lose all of that. Excellent. Uh, last set of questions I want to ask you both, and I'll start with you, Dr. Carrick, and then, and then Dr. Schwartz, I wanted to get your take on this, and then we're going to get into some misverses facts. And thank you guys for taking time out of your schedules today. And I'm probably going to go a few minutes over than what I promised you guys, but I think this is important to have this kind of very important conversation that people can understand the perspective from physicians. So, uh, Dr. Carrick, if I had to give you kind of a, a magic eight ball, <laughs> and I kind of said, where are we going next? What happens next? What do you think is going to happen next? Because that's a question that a lot of people ask me. They say, oh, Dr. G, you know, what's happening next? What's, what's three months from now going to look like? What's six months going to look like? What's one yeah. year from now going to look like? Have you given that any thought from your perspective? And then I'll ask Dr. Jillian, Jillian the same oh, question. I think every physician, nurse, therapist, whoever that's been involved in this has been thinking about what's this going to look like going forward. If you haven't thought about it, then you need to pull your head out of the ground. Um, my concern is that uh, I'll start with, I, so I live in Georgia, it's, it's, it's no secret that we're one of the few states that have, uh, you know, lifted the ban on a lot of the social distancing, at least, you know, state-imposed ban on social distancing. But at the same time, a lot of the restaurants and, you know, facilities are, are choosing to stay closed or still do takeout. You know, there's no, there's no concerts going on or anything like that, so there's, there's no large public gatherings. There hasn't been any announcement that any, you know, summer festivals are going on yet or anything like that. Those are all still in limbo. But I am afraid that there's going to be another surge uh, soon in Georgia, that it will peak sometime before the weather gets warm. My personal prediction, of course, I could be wrong, and we're, we're both going to go back and edit this if I'm completely wrong. It's going exactly. Take it out. I think, I think there'll be, a, my, my opinion is there'll be a small surge before it gets uh, hot, so before July. It's going to slow to a trickle through the hotter months of the summer. It's not going to be zero, but we're going to see, you know, a handful of cases a month roll through the door to be admitted and end up, maybe end up in the ICU. And I think that we will see another spike in the fall and winter. I hope it's not going to be nearly as bad as this one, but I fear that it will be. My hope is that there's going to be some herd immunity and low-level cases that persist for the next few months while it's warm. And then um, I think it's going to be bad again in the fall and winter. And then I think it's going to run its course by roughly the summer of 2021. 20, uh, I think it's going to be a roughly an 18 to 24 month uh, course where uh, it will die down to the levels of what the flu is after it spikes each year. Um, that's my prediction. Of course, I could be wrong, but that's, that's kind of what I foresee. All right. Thank you, uh, Dr. Carrick. Dr. Schmitz, you know, get your magic eight ball. <laughs> going on, I think like Miss Cleo kind of thing, and uh, give me your kind of take on that. <laughs> give me your take on the next, you know, three months, six months, maybe even a year from now. Where do you think we're going to be with this? 
You know, the, the question about the, the heat and the summer is, is a really good one. So I, I'm in San Antonio, Texas right now, and it, it's 90-something degrees today. It's been in the 90s for two months now. Um, and I don't know that it necessarily is dropping off cases. And certainly places like Ecuador and places that were a lot harder, uh, they, they still had a prevalence of cases. So I don't know that we know geographically in, in the summer, like if this will act like other viruses do or we see a decrease. I do think this is going to be around for a while. I think until we really have a, a vaccine that this is going to continue to be there. I don't think we can eradicate this overnight until that's available. And I think it is going to take some time. There's, I think now 61 different vaccine trials that are out there. So I'm optimistic that many of them are getting into the clinical trials of, of getting us closer to that step. Um, I think this is going to be a, a catalytic change for medicine. I think doing things we did that we would normally take two years is going to take two months. We're seeing that with telemedicine and increasing our outreach into the community for paramedics using iPads to determine, you know, does this patient even need to come to the hospital of doing home health checks of, of things that were like, gosh, why didn't we think of this earlier? Um, yeah. So while it, there's a lot to be concerned about, I think there's also many opportunities and things to be optimistic that we can learn from this. Um, but I, I think I agree that 18 months is probably a realistic time frame of, of this kind of lingering until we, we find a, a kind of definitive solution. Excellent. I'm, and I'm going to agree with both of you on that one. So you got me on the record. So there you go. Let's get into some myths versus facts. So each week on the show, we break down myths versus facts. It's, it's all about me and my crew building trust and delivering truth. There's a lot of misinformation out there. So I want to set the record straight. I love doing myths versus facts. So what I'm going to say is I'm going to say a statement. And then Dr. Carrick and Dr. And, and Dr. Schmitz are going to say myth or fact. They're going to tell us why. It's a myth or fact, maybe a few, a few sentences. But then we're going to kind of go boom, 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 boom. We're going to try to get as many as we can get in within about a probably yeah. less than a minute time frame. But here we go. Let's do it. All right, Dr. Carrick, first statement for you. Myth or fact. If I go to a hospital, I will get COVID. Myth or fact? Myth. Please explain. Well, we, we covered this uh, a little bit earlier. With the, the current, with the level of uh, concern that everybody has in the hospital right now for contracting it themselves and the fear of spreading it to other patients, we're taking the utmost precautions with PPE, hand washing, uh, social distancing. I can't, and there's six foot tape mark lines uh, around every possible facility in the hospital that keeps people six feet from each other. So the hospital, as Dr. Schmitz mentioned, is one of the safest places you can be right now. So Yes, you can go seek medical care if you need it at a hospital. Thank you. Here we go, Dr. Schmitz. Next statement. Vulnerable people are not people like me. They're people like my parents or my grandparents. Myth or fact? False. We are all vulnerable. and We can't predict individually who's going to get this and who's not. There are some things associated with higher risk, but we're, we're all potentially vulnerable. All right, here we go, Dr. Kirk. I like this one. Uh, no, I'll take this one. Hey, why don't I join in the final? I like this one. I'm going down this list. All right, here's a statement, myth or fact. I know the answer because this applies to me. Uh, here's a statement. I should continue to delay my routine health checkups with my physicians. The answer, that is a big fat myth. We want you to continue your healthcare checkups, continue to invest in your health. I am worried, just like how Dr. Schmitz and Dr. Kirk are, that of us having delayed some, some access to care, certain things like mammograms, colonoscopies, uh, things like that, diabetes follow-ups, that's going to actually cause a, a really big public health threat and more disease burden as we go down the door. So that's a myth. Here we go. Dr. Carrick, I like this test. I like this statement. It is easy for me to get a test to see if I am currently infected with COVID-19, even if I do not exhibit symptoms. Is it easy uh, to get a test? That is, that is a um, um, fact. Oh, is it easy? No, it's a myth. Sorry. 
it's it depends on where you live, uh, but it's that's uh, it's not easy to get tested. If you're asymptomatic, it is not easy to get a test in all locations. Wonderful, thank you. By your location. Thank you. Here we go, Dr. Schmitz. I like this one. My town has minimal cases of COVID-19 and no deaths. Therefore, I shouldn't have to worry about the virus affecting my community. Myth, because it probably just hasn't gotten to the surge yet, um, and also we haven't tested enough to know where it is in, in the community. So it, that's definitely a myth. Wonderful. And I may expand and say, you know, again, we still continue to be an interconnected society. People still travel, people still work, they still go visit. Uh, we cross city lines, uh, county lines, et cetera, et cetera. So this is certainly the risk is still there. Here we go. Dr. Carrick, I like this one. Uh, it is not clear to what extent children help spread the virus. Myth or fact? Uh, that's fact. It is not clear exactly what, what role children play in spreading this particular virus. But um, they do, it's well known, they do play a big role in spreading other viruses. So you could extrapolate and say it is likely that they could play a role. One of the reasons why obviously schools have been canceled, but we don't know for sure. All right, here we go. Dr. Schmitz, I like this one. We kind of answered it, but let's ask it again just to hit home the point. There will be fewer cases of COVID-19 in the summer, with a fact. I don't think we know yet. I think that that is what a lot of people are hoping, um, but I don't think we have good evidence to say that yet. And I guess we'll find out in the next few months. Yeah, we will. Thank you. Here you go, Dr. Carrick. I like I'm this one. I'm for a fact on that one. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Here you go, Dr. Carrick. Statement: Myth or fact? The idea of controlled voluntary infection, akin to the chickenpox parties of the 1980s, is a good idea. Myth or fact? That's a myth. That's a terrible idea. Please explain. I'll leave it at that. I don't, I, oh. <laughs> so, uh, I, yeah, yeah, it's a bad idea. So, so something so, for something so virulent and so, and so uh, much, it's just a much higher risk of having complications and deaths than, than chickenpox. Chickenpox is bad for adults, yes. It's mild in children. Yes, coronavirus is mild in children, but those children go out and, and can affect other folks. So the, the more folks that are exposed to this virus, the more people that are at risk uh, who are trying to do their best to stay away from it are going to be at risk. So, you know, like I say, it's, it's a selfish thing to expose yourself and not think about the greater whole of society. Yeah, I would say that you don't know if your body's going to be in that in that percentage of people, the majority where it's Absolutely. like they're not going to get anything or because we've all seen young people that have no no issues in the hospitals, and you're the one that's putting, you're the one, Dr. Carrick, or even Dr. Schmitz from your end, you guys are the ones that are intubating them if they're coming in acute. All right, here we go. Dr. Schmitz will do two more of these. I like this one. Uh, Dr. Schmitz, we will see a spike in COVID-19 cases during the 2021 influenza season. So I think we probably will. We tend to see an uptick in, in viral infections and spread during the winter months. Um, a lot of that is people sneezing, coughing, touching, spreading things. Um, and the data initially looked like it was unlikely that you could have two things at once, but the most recent papers that are coming out are showing as much as a 20% co-infection with different viruses. So once it's out there and, and as the weather changes, we'll see, but I, I think we will see a second surge. All right, thank you. Here we go, last one, Dr. Carrick, I like this one. Uh, here's a statement. There are, there are existing drugs that will prevent, treat, and cure COVID-19 infection. Myth or fact? Uh, currently, that is a myth. We don't know for sure if any of these drugs uh, work well. Uh, we've heard a lot of uh, early speculation that some of these uh, will work. 
We now have some data that some of the early drugs that we thought might be effective um, no, may in fact uh, are not effective or may in fact be putting people at risk. There's um, several hundreds, literally, of trials going on right now to try to find medications that are effective. We have some drugs that have shown uh, in vitro activity, meaning in a lab or petri dish, have the potential to be effective. We currently don't have data that those work in vivo or in humans. So currently, there's no good indication to use these antiviral drugs or immunomodulatory drugs uh, for treating COVID infection or trying to prevent it outside of a clinical trial. All right. Thank you, Dr. Kerrigs. There you go. There's research facts, everybody. All right, guys. So we have about five minutes left, and this has been an awesome discussion, uh, just connecting with just longtime friends and classmates of mine. So it's just awesome. I said at the beginning, you know, we called it the chief complaint. You know, what does COVID look like in the eyes of frontline physicians? When somebody leaves our office, we call it the assessment and plan. That's when, of course, we give somebody their diagnosis. We give them a treatment plan and, of course, most importantly, a follow-up. So let's wrap this thing up. Uh, I'll start with you, Dr. Carrick. Give us a few take-home points today for those that are out there listening and watching us uh, about the impact, about the severity of what we're dealing with with COVID-19. What should people take away from well, today's show? I think that a lot of what's been mentioned in the media is what people hear. Uh, a lot of it's true, a lot of it's sensationalist, but this disease is like something I've never seen before, like something none of us have seen before, obviously, because it's a novel virus, but it is one of the most scary, um, contagious, and hard to manage uh, diseases that, that an ICU physician would ever hope to see. We see complications of other organs failing besides the lungs. So it's not just specific to the lungs, it's other organs, it's heart problems, it's kidney problems, it's blood clot problems. Now we have evidence that maybe even direct toxicity or effects on the brain and secondary strokes. So uh, severe neuromuscular weakness. So, you know, currently there's a small part of every crazy guy and gal that went into critical care that enjoys this. But I'm scared of if this continues and we see continued spikes of this, that it's going to overburden our healthcare system. It's going to take away our ability to properly care for these patients if we run out of proper PPE, um, if we run out of the proper uh, tools and tubing, ventilator circuits, et cetera. That's what we weren't prepared for. The country did not have a good uh, preparation and plan uh, for taking care of a pandemic, and it's 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 wreaking its havoc and showing its effects now. Well, thank you, Dr. Carrick. It's been my pleasure having you on my show. Dr. Schmitz, give us a few take-home points out there for people, you know, some really important things to know about what we're dealing with, the reality, the truth, the severity of COVID-19 and how it's impacting our lives. I think as we alluded to earlier, a number of states are now starting to reopen, and I think it's important to take general precautions just because restaurants are open or movies are open doesn't mean that you can go around and, and hug everybody and, and jump back into coronavirus parties. We really need to be cautious in how we look at this and collect really good data on what's working and what's not so we can make some educated decisions based on data of, of what is safe so that we can protect ourselves and our country. I do want to reiterate again one more time that, that the hospital is safe. We really want people to seek medical attention if you're feeling ill and if you think you're having an emergency, please go to the emergency department. And last is just to be kind. I think this has been an incredibly stressful time and overwhelming for everyone, not just those of us on the front line, but for everyone at home, everyone in their jobs, trying to balance all the, the multiple stressors this has put on us. 
and, and just kind of take that in a little bit and, and take the time that you need to make sure that you're well, your family is well, but be kind to each other because everyone is, is under a lot of stress right now. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Dr. Schmitz. And my final words are this, you know, at the end of the day, I want to make sure that people are out there, people are doing well, they have all the resources there. COVID-19 has changed us forever. It's going to continue to define us as humans. But I'm the forever optimist. I know that we have an amazing potential to get this right, to continue to keep people healthy, to continue to love our loved ones, our families, and everybody that we care about. Again, humanity, physicians, are so grateful to take care of our patients at their sickest times. It is our duty, it's our Hippocratic Oath. We will continue to provide the best care possible for you and your loved ones. So I wanna thank my guest today, Dr. Jillian Schmitz, MD, FACEP, board certified emergency medicine physician, associate professor at Uniform Services, University of the Health Sciences. Check her out, www.usuhs.edu. Dr. Ryan Carrick, MD, board certified pulmonary and critical care medicine physician, director of interventional bronchoscopy, Piedmont Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine, Piedmont Healthcare. Check them out, www.piedmont.org. So you've been watching and listening live on Facebook. This video, this episode is written by Mark D. Gomez, MD, and Tiffany E.R. Gomez, producer of Tiffany E.R. Gomez. Music is by the wonderful Mr. Havis. Copyright 2020 by MDG Wellness, LLC. All rights reserved. Stay tuned for my episode next week. We're doing COVID-19, coping in crisis. Thank you, Dr. Carrick. Thank you, Dr. Schmitz. I'll see you guys later. Stay well. Thank you, Dr. G. All right. Take All care, right. guys. Bye-bye. Bye, Ryan. Thank see you later. <laughs> Adios. See you, buddy. Bye. Hey, bud.